0: I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Not long ago, I sat down in the studio with Steve Borman, the former drummer of the Black Crows. And this was right before the Black Crows announced the reunion. Steve wrote this book called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, a memoir. He co-wrote it with Steve Hyatt a friend of the show. This book is wild. Even if you don't care about the Black Crows, it's a hilarious and genuinely gripping account of a band that just seems determined to self-destruct. It's one of the most jaw-dropping and entertaining rock memoirs I can remember reading for a long time. So I was excited to have Steve here, and let's go right into that interview. Man, I don't even know where to start. And I think, <laughs> I think, it's a good we'll, sign. Yeah, exactly. And I think we'll jump around. We're not going to tell the story chronologically, but. Separate even from The Madness of the Black Crows, I couldn't get my head around one detail at the beginning, which is that you must be some kind of weird drum prodigy, because you basically jumped into what became a nationally famous, important, excellent band with barely any drum experience. and I, I, I didn't get it.
1: How'd <laughs> well, you do it's, that? I did it by being pretty obsessed with drumming and just not ever doing anything about it from the time I was six. I right. mean... One of my older brothers, Tom, handed me some Beatles albums when I was six. So they were mine. So that meant they mattered. And I put on Help. And the first time I ever heard Ticket to Ride, I started air drumming. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, my arms are flailing. And I'm like, what is that thing that guy's doing on those drums? It started that day and it never went away. I just I felt such a connection to, first of all, Ringo Starr's drumming, but then drumming beyond that. And then just as my record collection grew and I became obsessed with the idea of being in a band... It was an assumed thing from a very early age. I'm going to be in a drummer in a band one day. Like, I just never occurred to me that wouldn't happen. But despite
0: practically, (laughs) no, you weren't practicing in drums. (laughs) No, I
1: never had a kit. I never did anything. I just thought about it, and I thought about it, and I obsessed about it. When I started going to see bands in clubs, like in high school and college, I was so zoomed in on the drummer all the time. And I was really thinking about it. And There's a point to this. I'm not going to get too long-winded. I really thought about every drummer and what they did and how what they did impacted the other players in the band i mean i would literally be thinking all these things while enjoying a show and so when i did finally get a call from a friend who said let's start a band and i said okay and i was 21 years old i had played a drum kit by then a handful of times but i'd never owned a kit or anything so when i bought a kit and set it up for the first day and was going to practice with a band the most important thing for any young band, a local rock band trying to get started, the most important thing for a drummer is to know what not to do. Because most drummers get in the way of everybody else because they're all trying to be Keith Moon. And I'm putting, you know, in the most simplest terms, I thought I'm just here to be a drum machine. I'm going to play straight and I'm not going to speed up. And they're going to write the songs, the first band I was in, or they're going to tell me what to play. I was cool with all of it. I just wanted to be in the room and be sitting behind a drum kit. And I thought, well, I'm not going to screw it up. I wasn't going to be great, but I wasn't going to be bad. And that's a real important line in young, first, you know, starting off bands.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting lesson. You can essentially become a really good drummer in your head and then sit at it. Well, you're you. well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I will say this too. I do have a natural inclination, obviously. Clearly, I mean, yeah. I I always yeah. knew and I always felt it. It wasn't even so much like, oh, I really want that life. I mean, it sounds weird. It was a calling or it was just an, an awareness of, oh, I can do that. And I, I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so It just took me a long time to get around to doing it. But once I did, it never surprised me that I got pretty good pretty fast. So you
0: meet the Robinson brothers, and it's not really a case where you meet these guys, and at first it's kind of like love at first sight, and only over a long period of years do you see, oh, there might be some problems here. Right. It's kind of from the beginning. Sure. What did you see from the very beginning?
1: From the, well, from the jump. I mean, all the, you know, Chris was was exactly what you might expect, but even more so because he was 20. I mean, he was beyond animated and, you know, didn't have a filter. Every thought came right out of his mouth. And he was hilariously funny and manic and exhausting. Like that was all on display right from the night I moved to Atlanta. And I met Rich the next day, and he was the exact opposite as a younger brother would be. He's just completely withdrawn, you know, just no interest in being sociable whatsoever. They were just complete polar opposites. And then their relationship, because I saw them play a show my second night in town. They were glaring at each other and you know showing teeth from the beginning and it was just always right there. You know I have five brothers and I know what brotherly tension can be but this was at a level beyond what I'd ever experienced but I also sort of understood it too.
0: Why did Shake Your Money Maker turn out so well?
1: Because we had a great producer who helped us find our strengths. And we, for the first and one of the last times, were smart enough to listen to somebody that knew a lot more than we did. And so we let him produce us. Well, we didn't have a choice. We couldn't have made that record without George guiding every step of the way. We met George in the spring of 88, and a, you a know, little over a year later, we made that album. And for that 12, 14, 15 months, he was constantly giving us direction, and we constantly took everything he said on. And it's funny because people say like, oh, he made your band. No, he didn't. He took what was there and shaped it. You know, it's just like a coach of a basketball team. You know, it's I mean, it really is. It's like, okay, you're a great talent, but let me tell you how you can be the most effective. And, you know, we weren't Prince. We couldn't produce ourselves. We didn't have that. You know, like I say, the Beatles had George Martin. You know what I mean? No one thinks the Beatles didn't know what they were doing, but you had to have somebody that says, "Okay, let's do this. And George was, I mean, it's unquantifiable how important he was to us. And again, and I give us credit for recognizing that. And what he recognized in us, we recognized in him. It was a magical match that happened just because he had walked into a club one night in New York City.
0: And Brendan O'Brien was on hand, who later mm-hmm. became one of the most important right. producers of the 90s. But sure. he, he was not, obviously, the producer of that
1: album. No, I had met Brendan a couple times in Atlanta. He was the house producer for DB Records, which was Danny Beard's indie label, that had done the first B-52 single years before, Rock Lobster. And he had a lot of great Atlanta and Athens bands in the 70s and 80s. And Brendan was one of his producers, a local guy producing records. And I worked at a record store called Wax and Facts that Danny Beard owned. Wow! So the DB of DB Records owned an indie record store, and he was my boss. And so Brendan would come into the store to get paid you know, for right. the records he was making. And so I just knew that there was this really funny super fast wit sarcastic dude named brendan who made records that's all i knew about him and george said do you guys know any engineers and i said Well, there's this dude named Brendan who's really funny, and then Johnny Colt, our bass player, knew Brendan personally, actually, but everyone that knows Brendan calls him Bud. And Johnny goes, oh, no, I got this guy named Bud. He's amazing. (laughs) And we were talking about the same guy. didn't realize it. And so George called him and literally said, are you any good? And Brendan said, yeah, I'd like to think so. And George said, okay, you're hired. You know, that was it, basically. And uh, so, yeah, we had no idea that the guy we hired to engineer our record was about to become all that Brendan O'Brien became.
0: And he played on it a little bit as well, right?
1: He played the guitar solo on Hard to Handle, and then he played, I think he played an organ part on one song. I mean, Chuck Lavelle did all the keys, but then I think there was something we missed, and made, but I could be wrong. I, I know he played one guitar part, and that was on Hard to Handle. And that was the thing that early on, a lot of people, you know, the the word was, oh, Brendan played all the guitars. Not true at all. He (laughs) never said that. Rich must have loved that. Yeah, oh yeah, he was thrilled with that. He never said that at all. Brendan always, but it's, you know, things just get out of hand. But no, Bud played the hard-to-handle solo, because, you know, they got to LA to mix the record, and Jeff Cease, our guitarist, had played a solo, and George, being George, understood he's like, this is a hit song, and the solo doesn't have, it just needs more pop. And so Brendan... Just walked in and I'm sure in a matter of you know two passes had that solo done. He's a spectacular musician.
0: Now, the Brendan intersection is interesting because one of the sort of sub themes that runs into the 90s with this book is that the Robinsons had a lot of resentment for grunge. They felt yeah. it was like a fad mm-hmm. that. Was also kind of eclipsing at the VMAs when Nirvana and Pearl Jam were fighting. They were kind of like, hey, how come no one's fighting with us, right? There's yeah. a little bit of that. Well, it
1: was Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. I'm fighting. sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. No, yeah. and I'm, I wasn't immune to that. I mean, I love Nirvana, I thought Nevermind was great. And I was really into Soundgarden. I didn't care for Pearl Jam too much, and that's just personal taste. That sure. wasn't any of the. But watching Seattle explode, I mean, I didn't think that was awesome either. Trust me, I'm not. But I also saw it for what it was, which is, well, these guys are all just in bands, and it's a moment right now. But we'll see who stays around. You know, I didn't, I didn't get it personally too worked up about it.
0: But the Rick, Robinson, well, yeah. no, Rich yeah. was
1: Rich liked. I know Rich was into Nirvana, and I think it's the same thing in Soundgarden. Chris had a real issue with watching other bands you know we were the band of the minute for a minute and you know we were like between Guns N' Roses and Nirvana there was this Black Crows year you know 91 where we became the biggest new thing and then before we're even finished with the tour we're two months out from the end of Shake Your Money Maker and then Nevermind hits and within three weeks you know it took us a year to get on everybody's radar they were at number one in three weeks it was almost like okay we just opened this door for ourselves and then this mac truck rolled over and rolled you know and came through and knocked us out of the way in terms of awareness and you know the band of the moment when that went away for us it went away sharply but that happens to every band eventually and when it happened to us it was um And it flew very counter to the imaging of the band and the things that we were presenting to care about it. But of course we cared about it. It sucked. You know, when you're going everywhere, everyone's like, oh my God, you guys are the, this is the record. You're the best new band and blah, blah, blah. And then literally overnight, it's another band is that guy. You're like, well, hang on. We're just getting used to this. We're just getting comfortable in this role. And it's
0: not even just another band. It became an entire movement that you could never really be part of. Of course. Yeah.
1: And, And here's the thing that's so frustrating about the Black Crows. We didn't want to be part of it. But then we resented that it happened. You know, it's like no, we were set up by ninety two, ninety three to be in our own lane and be, you know, leaders. And what I mean by that is we could have led ourselves anywhere. We weren't attached to a movement. I mean, trust me, that was a weight on the back of all those bands to suddenly realize they're all connected together in the minds of the public. You know, if you and they all had to do with their own issues. We were a separate entity totally in our own lane by 93 and ready to be there forever and set up in the way the business works behind the scenes but also as what had become a really great band and an efficient band at producing new material and blah 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 we were all good to go and still had to be angry about all the other things you know it was never that was never enough there's always there are people in the world that need a wall to push against and when there's not a wall they have to go make a new one.
0: And it's Chris who really like hated Nirvana and Pearl Jam.
1: I don't think he had a problem with Nirvana. I think he actually liked Nirvana okay. But yeah, the Pearl Jam thing wound him up. The whole idea you, you, you of,
0: have him saying, Don't ever fucking talk to me about well, Nirvana, please, he was, it's
1: embarrassing. He came back later. I do know <laughs> that he later was like, That guy wrote great songs. So I I'm not trying to just kick dirt in his face for everything. <laughs> but no, there was a moment making the third album in pre production and and Rich was just cranking the second Nirvana or the third Nirvana record in utero, the second big one. And uh, I remember listening to all apologies with him, and he was just like, I just want to rock. This rocks. Why are we not listening? Rich was saying, This is people like rock music, and I like rock music, and our best songs are rock songs. Why are we doing these other things? And Chris just didn't want to hear it. You know, he was on a mission to do something that, with the more time that passes, becomes more and more confusing
0: on any particular day, it seems like he was very clear about some direction, but Mm -hmm. the next day it might be something entirely different.
1: Without question. Um, (laughs) like you said at the beginning, it's a heartbreaking or there's a lot of sadness. I mean, like the book in general to me is it's funny and sad. It's not angry. I've been angry in the past. It's not bitter. It's sad. And it's always going to be sad. And I'm okay with that because the story makes perfect sense to me now that it's done. It's just, it sits where it sits and that's the story. So that's my story anyway.
0: So I want to take a moment and talk about vivid seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just gotta get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you gotta get out of the house. You gotta have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE, that's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E, for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. So after all that, I mean, the second album holds up extremely well, Southern
1: Harmony. I agree. Again, what made that one work? That was us having gone out, and for Shake Your Money Maker, we toured for 20 months, and we really were the kind of band that would get on a bus after a show and put on a Led Zeppelin bootleg and all study it, or a Little Feet bootleg, or a Stones in 72, and we would... We were consumed with listening to music. On days off, Chris had a stereo in his room, and everybody would hang out in his room, and we'd listen to music. And we took that very, very seriously. Like, our competition was never Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam. Our competition was Zeppelin and Little Feet, if you will. Like, I mean, you know, not a stated objective, but that's what we were comparing ourselves to. And that's where we wanted to get. And so... That's no small feat to say, I want to be like 77 Little Feet. You know, it's kind of like, okay, kid, go ahead. But we got really good trying to get there. And so the band, by the end of the Shake Your Moneymaker tour, we were a, an absolutely formidable world-class rock and roll band. And then we added Mark Ford to the band, and that just elevated it to this next place where now there was... We had also now this lead guitar player who was from another place. I mean, he elevated what we had already done. The final piece of the puzzle was there. So when we went in to make the second record... Again, with George producing, Brendan's production career had taken off, Brendan O'Brien, but he came back to engineer just to do it, you know, because that had been the start to his career, was getting working with us and then meeting George and then Rick Rubin, and then he was off and running. So we got the team back together for the second album. And unlike the first album where it took days to get tracks and George had to coach us through the studio process, we walked in, set up, and knocked that thing out in a matter of days. Wow. The band was as confident and most importantly, as cohesive as it would ever be, like there was no variance or questions about what we were trying to do with each song. As a song was written and brought to the band by Rich and Chris, or as a song was written with the band in the room, whichever the process was, they found their place very quickly. And we would—they uh, were writing and we were producing and arranging song, you know, getting songs together. In looking back now, it's an incredible clip, and we had gotten really efficient by which i mean we didn't have to talk about things it could hand gestures everybody could read each other very very well in all six directions in the band and so that band was incredibly special for a while and so the second album was that was us saying okay the first album was way bigger than we ever thought it could be and we were in over our heads a couple years ago making that record but now we've caught up and surpassed anything we ever thought we could be and we're going to show you what this is and so that The jump from the first to the second record to me is the biggest jump. It's as big a jump as any band's going to make.
0: It also, you know, frankly set up an anticipation (laughs) that that's where the band starts, you know, ups and downs, but that's where the band starts to go wrong, of course, Mm -hmm. is after the second album. Right. Because if it had continued on that progression, it could have been much more than it ended up being it, without we, doubt that's well, where the tragedy really starts well, to come out
1: it's it's interesting too because you know everybody well you told me you read you just blasted right through the book and i mean a lot of people have which is great it's very readable and it was written to be readable obviously and i, I like that people sit down and lose two days and they read the book <laughs> i think there is a lot of stuff that that gets glossed over or is missed or maybe as it's my fault as a writer that i didn't make it as clear but as things started to go awry in the band and i'm I'm responding you haven't said this but a lot of I, i've sure. gotten this question a lot the commercial prospects for the black crows went sideways and people seem to think that was what my problem was the commercial viability and success of the band went hand in hand with the band being a collective cohesive unit and the problem for me with the black crow story the the things that will always make me sad and the missed opportunities it's not about we didn't get to arenas it's not about we didn't sell six million albums the third time around It's the things that all led to the band splintering. I mean, it was always internal. Every problem the band ever had... Like, the thing about grunge that's funny is, like, yeah, that bummed us out to see us be eclipsed overnight by all these new bands. And then on the heels of grunge came whatever was next. I mean, you know, Third Eye Blind and Matchbox 20. And, you know, there's always new bands, so you never get that moment back. But none of that ever really impacted the Black Crows. What killed the Black Crows was the Black Crows. It was always an internal... The external machination of the music industry we never cared honestly enough about it and when things did bother us instead of just admitting they bothered us like a normal person would and then either come up with a plan to deal with it or just go it's not worth the fight and move on we ignored it and pretended we didn't care and it festered and it just there was all this anxiety and anger and angst at all times because nothing was ever addressed in real time and nothing was ever properly dealt with and ultimately what we're talking about is addiction and what we're talking about is codependency and betrayal and loyalty and all of those things in mixed amounts coming and going day in and day out i mean it's a story that's anybody that's been in a family with addiction can read this book and they're going to go like this isn't a band it's a family you know anybody can relate to a lot of the things that were going on
0: the second album was made super sober super focused despite what people think then we get to the third album, and again, <laughs> yeah. that's where it just flies off the rails. And one of the things we were talking before the show started, Chris actually goes to you when you didn't want to do coke while recording the album. This is a fucking rock and roll fucking band. You're a fucking pussy, yeah. which is just like, come on, man. <laughs> this is like- well,
1: that's, uh, you know, and I know that's a startling thing to read, and that was just another moment in time in the band. The idea that you had to drink and do drugs was, to him everything. I mean, it was a real bravado. It's a machismo thing to him. And he's got an incredible constitution for chemicals, clearly. Plenty of other people don't. And a lot of people that came into the orbit of the Black Crows ended up in the trash bin because they tried to keep up and couldn't. And if that's something that he wants to wave that flag and say, you know, I'm the general of the drug army. Okay, great. But (laughs) so fucking what? I mean, that's not something that. And again, I look at this and say, I feel ultimately sadness because when you're someone who It's as plain as day that for anybody that needs that much, if if that's what you're building yourself up on, there's some incredible damage and sadness, and there's a real hole that you're trying to fill. That's obvious. But when you're in a band, you're in a submarine. And when you're in a submarine, the context goes away really quick. I said for years the hardest part about being in a band is being in a band. Because by the time you're five years into touring constantly, where to pull over the bus for lunch is as big an argument as what the first single should be. You lose all perspective. The fights are never resolved, so the fights never end. They start and they, you know, it's just always there.
0: Before the third album was Amorica, it was something called Tall, Mm -hmm. and it was just utterly wasted effort. Yeah. What was that like to even go? back through that period because that's where the horror movie starts
1: yeah, a little right, bit. Yeah. yeah a lot of this stuff to write wasn't as difficult as you might think only because i'd already gone through it and processed it and i've had my therapy and i've had plenty of time to think about these things but that said it was still very it's very difficult you know to put it all down and to write it all out i did find myself at times thinking like i can't believe this happened i can't you know you're talking about a band that in 1989 a month before the album comes out or two months before our first album came out but our first album our advance for the band was five thousand dollars everyone got a thousand bucks i walked into the record store that i worked on halloween day 1989 and gave my two weeks notice i said or no i'm sorry i walked in in mid-october i said i got two weeks everybody and i was the conquering hero because i had a thousand dollars i could quit my job the record's out in february <laughs> i'll be cool so my last day was halloween i was back at thanksgiving weekend out of money back at the record store because i'd spent my thousand dollars so that's where everybody was we all lived in someone else's home none of us had a nickel and then four years later we spent six hundred thousand dollars on a record that that we don't put out that and nobody can steer chris off this ledge it's like we're burning money like literally lighting on fire and to him that meant all you care about is money And, you know, we had the argument many times, like, no, I actually don't. Like, I don't drive a Porsche, and I'm not vacationing in five-star hotels. I don't care about money. I care about wasting money. And there is a big difference there that most people can understand, but he absolutely couldn't.
0: (laughs) How much of this was just a incredible self-destructive urge, maybe especially in Chris, maybe in Rich too, like even just all the self-sabotaging stuff, like even the cover of Amorica putting like pubicare on it for no real reason. And then like basically telling the guy from Best Buy to Fuck Off and Mm -hmm. just these things that just seem like, how much of it was just this urge to like destroy? Uh,
1: All of it. And I think people that don't have an expectation of the book and people that don't really care about the Black Crows can see a lot of this a little more clearly. Fans are troubled by it, of course, and they think I'm like trying to pick fights and I'm just trying to crush people in it. My ultimate feeling about what you just said is that self-destructive thing is innate, it's genetic, it's in Chris's DNA, and it's heartbreaking. Because the guy that I saw him turn into by 92, 93, I thought was an incredibly authentic writer and being and artist, and a guy that I was still ready to line up behind and do everything I could to contribute, I'll put my entire life into where this guy wants to lead this collection of musicians. And we all saw it that way. You know, he's not the coach, he's the quarterback. He's not the owner. He's, you know, and and he, of course, immediately upon the second album success, and by the time that tour was done, we're headlining festivals in Europe, he thought, well, then I'm now going to be in charge of all creative decisions. Now, he had never been that before. He certainly was the instigator and the catalyst, and no one ever questioned that. Well, except Rich, but no one ever questioned that. But it was this line that he crossed where now I'm going to make all decisions. I'm going to direct the videos. I'm going to pick the album artwork. Uh, and he just needed to do all of these things that every decision was met with clear, compelling evidence that this is not your strength. These are not your wheelhouses. And he truly didn't care. And so that level of sabotage and you know, putting that stick down and you're going to drive this thing into the dirt no matter what at a certain point you realize like, oh, there's nothing to be done here. There's nothing we can do or say. I mean, because trust me, everybody was doing and saying everything they thought they could. It's a combination
0: of an urge to self-destruct, it seems like, along with a real megalomania.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's absolutely that. You know, a gaping insecurity and a raging ego go hand in hand almost all the time anyway. I mean, those are usually uh, bedfellows. So, you know, which can make for a great frontman. And making any adjustments along the way was just something he was unwilling to do or incapable of doing to that idea that you know like again going back to the money thing the idea that like okay you're still making decisions like we're a local band there's a lot at stake here and i don't mean personally we're talking about dozens of people make a living we are now this the black crows became a big uh, business yeah and he refused to show respect for that and show respect for the efforts of a lot of people and and then like you said it's that megalomaniac thing but when he's cornered he's the first guy to come around and say oh my god i need everybody let's do this we're all here right and that's a very common thing in rock frontmen. i mean you know there's a lot of you know it's not unusual to see that happen once fame and fortune roll in
0: there's so many in the book but what's a moment an early moment when you said jesus chris is capable of of real irrationality
1: (laughs) let's see we had those in the mr crow's garden days you know there were so many times well there's one that didn't make the final edit of the book that i wrote it's along the way in 1999 when we were with columbia records for an album we put an album out called by your side yeah and the whole story is in the book about you know all the things that led to us being in that situation which were not great for us. We did the best we could under the circumstances knowing we had to make a record and we were sort of stuck. Made a record with a great producer who's still a dear friend, but it wasn't where the band would have naturally been heading if that makes sense. Right. So along the way, you know, there was a few promotional things that came up and there was a conference in New Orleans, a radio conference, the Gavin conference and they had a ton of program directors at tipitinas a tiny club in new orleans right and it was set up for the black crows to show up unannounced and just play a 30 minute set and the whole point was can we go on stage and play 30 minutes and chris can you just say to a room full of rock program directors hey we just want to say thanks for everyone for playing us for nine <laughs> years and if you're not on the new record thanks for your consideration that's it and he agreed to do that No problems. Okay, that'll be great. And so on a day off, we fly to New Orleans and just, it's a 30 minute, it's a milk run. You're going to go, go get some great food, go play for 30 minutes, go get some more great food and have a nice night in New Orleans. It shouldn't be that simplest
0: thing in the world. Yeah.
1: And at lunch that day, he and I were talking and he just said, you know, I'm just, I can't, I can't fucking believe we're here doing this. And I said, dude, we're (laughs) going to go get oysters tonight. We're going to go do this. We're going to do this. This is 30 minutes. These are actually the people who do play our records. Like... I know you hate corporate radio, and you hate the industry, and you hate everything, but you're looking at a group of people that actually like our music. And so we're just saying thanks. That's all it is. And he was like, you know, you're right. I don't know why I have such a problem with this. And then by the end of that lunch, it's like, yeah, fuck, man. We're here. Let's go have a good night. I mean, you're right. These, I said, these aren't the people that don't play us. These are the people that do.
0: <laughs>
1: Long story short, you know, three hours later, we're at this gig in the dressing room, and Stone Gossard, of all people, walks in. And Stone's the nicest guy in the world. Oh, yeah. Hey, what's up? And he was just there with someone from Epic or whatever label they were on under the Sony thing. I mean, a thing in Chris just snapped. <laughs> like, here's this guy who doesn't have to do these kind of things. Oh, boy. And he sees us, and this is embarrassing for me now, and he literally he went unhinged in two seconds. And we had to calm him down. He, you know, I just remember him saying something like, what the fuck is he doing here? And, and I remember looking up at Stone's face and saying like, hey man, you might want to take a minute. You know, like, let's head out in the dress seat. Let's go out in the hallway. It was one of those. And we walked on stage to do that show. And he had, he had turned into a Vesuvian geyser of hatred. And by the end of the night, again, it's 30 minutes, he wanted everyone to turn their amps up as loud as they could go. That was the only time he ever wanted that in his life. Right. And he just wanted to blast everyone's brains out. And at the end of the set, he said something about, this is real motherfucking rock and roll. Not that any of you would know about it. Something that effect. But then he spat on the stage and walked off. Nice. And whatever the people in that room who were playing the new record thought, I have a feeling a few of them stopped playing the new record. And then we walked into the dressing room and he was just, I mean, he was gone. He was just completely unhinged. And in the moment, it's appalling and, of course, absurdly funny. And it's just so embarrassing and so many of the things about the band and about that kind of interaction, and it's true, like everybody in the band had their own perspective on why these things all happened. That's my version of that story. That's sure. what I saw. But along the way, again, this goes back to this overriding theme of when you're dealing with addiction, there's so much embarrassment. And that leads to so much shame that everybody just keeps secrets and nothing's out. So a story like that, it sounds incredible, but it really wasn't off. It was not un-normal. You right. know, It was not unusual. And everybody just, you just, all you think is just get me to the hotel. You just want to shut the door behind you and be in a room by myself because the next day we're flying to Detroit and maybe tomorrow we'll be better. And that's all you can do at a certain point. It was years and years and years of that. And then every now and again, up until 97 anyway, it was very easy to, you know, you'd walk off stage some nights and we had just touched the face of God. And you're like, oh, fuck it. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Once that went away. And once the band lost its real identity and its true essence, and then it was just a band trying to hang on, that stuff became, you know, it was unbearable and it was obviously untenable.
0: I thought a part that was really funny was when Chris gets into the Grateful Dead and really no one else shares that Mm -hmm. interest in the band. And he takes a lot of mockery about it from Rich. And at the same time, as we were saying before the show started, it actually was probably very beneficial for the band's prospects because it helped you connect with that jam band audience so how did all that kind of play
1: out well the issue wasn't that chris loves the grateful dead i mean on its own well that's great awesome that's the grateful dead sure congratulations you love a great band (laughs) the problem is that the black crows as i said before by 93 we had established who we were and it was authentic. That's the most important thing. The first album, did we rip off the Stones as much as we possibly could? A fucking yeah, we did. That's what we yeah we knew what our strengths were, and we were raiding the larder of all these great bands that we loved, right, and yeah. wore it on our sleeve.
0: Know them? I wrote them as yeah, Keith Richards, exactly. Said, yeah. yeah,
1: and that was very clear. Yeah. The second album, and more importantly, the tour for the second album, we had left all that behind, and we were taking all of our influences, and they were coming out the other end in something that was wholly authentic. And that was an incredible time to be in the Black Crows, 92, 93, 94. We were just the Black Crows. That was its own thing. And so for him to then want to take what was just becoming, it's something that could have gone on forever, and then add not a dash or a hint or even a slice of what the Grateful Dead's ethos was and what their approach to music was, but completely go into that lane. On a real basic note, it just wasn't who we were. Yeah, It was never going to be who anyone else in the band wanted to be. Everybody had varying degrees of acceptance of that. Rich was on one polar opposite end saying, no fucking way. I was one <laughs> step in from Rich. And then came Johnny and then Mark and Ed in their own ways. It wasn't a question of, to me, everything. It's not a question of what my feelings for the Grateful Dead are. I went to see two Dead shows. That's it. But I thought they were both great. I had a blast both times. Sure. I've got friends who are lifelong deadheads. I have no issues with the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's silly to have to say that. But it's important to recognize that in 1993, I would have put more stock in the Black Crows than in Grateful Dead. Sure. That's where I was. We are our own Grateful Dead now. Like, we're one of those bands. And we're just two records in. And after Amorica, it was like, especially, okay, we're only three records in. And we're on our way to becoming the next one of those bands on our own. Why sure. are you going to take ninety pages of a hundred-page book from one other band? We're already writing our own. On a possibly related note, do you think? Do you think Chris was really spending a hundred thousand dollars a year on weed? That's what he said. I mean, <laughs> at the t- you know, weed wasn't as readily available in 1994 as it is now. He had to put some cash out. Here's the thing. It could have been 40 or 200. He honestly didn't know. But the idea that, of course, that story is says a lot more about everything than just simply that he was smoking a lot of pot.
0: One of the things that's really surprising about the book is how well Jimmy Page and Robert Plant come off. as like super regular guys, super friendly. Well, to, well,
1: to us, yeah. they certainly were. You know, it's funny because when I started writing the book, one of the things that I did not have... One of the surprises, I guess, as you're writing, I mean, you're a writer, so, you know, things come out that you later go like, oh, wow, I didn't recognize that was going to be such a big part of this. Was that of all the people in the world to separately and then on occasion collectively just be so good to the Black Crows and to give us so much for it to be those two guys was, I mean, I've always known it. But even when I was writing it, I was like, oh, my God, man, Robert and Jimmy were awesome to us. You know, like I kind of forgot how much those guys did for us.
0: Yeah, and Jimmy loved your playing, which is, yeah. you know, that's, don't get a better compliment. Oh, no, than that.
1: no, no, not at all. Because I started so late and all this stuff, like, you know, make no mistake, I think I'm a great rock and roll drummer, but I'm also really thrilled if anyone else agrees with that. I don't expect that to be common knowledge, you know what I mean? I, I don't ever have a thing of like, <laughs> what do you mean? Of course, I mean, I'm always pleased when someone, you know, like, I mean, I did an event last night and a guy came up and said, i play drums because of you you know and it's like that's that's awesome phenomenal and i i mean i truly am like so touched by that but i also know that i've had conversation with jimmy i've had several with jimmy i had a conversation with colonel bruce hampton about my playing and those two conversations the alpha and omega of types of musician guys that i look up to and revere for very different reasons the fact that those two guys you know, said things that they said to me, it's like, I'm totally good to go. Like, I don't ever have to say another word about my drumming because Jimmy Page and Colonel Bruce Hampton had certain things, very specific things to say to me that are, uh, put them on my tombstone.
0: That's fantastic. And, you know, I saw you guys play with Jimmy, I think at Roseland. I think I interviewed the brothers with Jimmy. Yeah. And then everyone was like, what happened? The tour ended. And, you know, now thanks to your book, we know. And I think now it's kind of out there which is that, and this is the point where you almost drop the book in horror. But basically, Jimmy <laughs> had offered to write songs on the next album mm-hmm. with the brothers, and they turned him down. And, well, and th- Rich
1: turned him down. Rich, Chris turned, didn't.
0: Okay, Rich turned him down. And at that point, Jimmy, understandably, I would say, was like, "Fuck this," and yeah. basically left the tour.
1: I mean, in the context too, it's important. He did have a significant back situation. He was in a lot of pain. Fair enough. Yeah, but he was willing to play through it. He was saying. This is going so great, and these guys this is so much fun and and he was also very Jimmy doesn't miss a thing. I mean, it sounds like a I think anyone that knows anything about Jimmy Page would not be surprised to hear that. He doesn't say much, but it nothing eludes his radar. and so I make that point to say where the black crows were in the summer of 99 to where the black crows were in the summer of 2000 were two entirely different <laughs> planets in terms of perception and future prospects and that was solely because we were playing gigs with Jimmy Page it turned around the entire- went from that
0: columbia record which was like a, a kind of forced attempt at yep. a back to basics thing yep that people didn't love, to a band that was suddenly going to go on a tour that every rock fan in the world was incredibly excited about.
1: Well, you know, Page Plan had blown up, and now we're out doing Zeppelin with Jimmy. And again, the thing about that that was so spectacular is that in the room and from the get-go, from the first rehearsal, it was authentic. It was authentically and organically special. Oh, it was awesome. It was not put (laughs) together by our manager and his manager. It was Jimmy said hey, would you guys do a 40-minute set with me for a one-off? And then he had so much fun, he said, would you ever think about doing shows? It came from a very, very genuine, authentic place of this is just fun and what an unexpected treat for everybody. So that's why it was so special. And then to build on that and build on it and build it. And then along the way, oh, it didn't change Jimmy Page's future prospects. (laughs) He's Jimmy fucking Page. (laughs) you know. But where the Black Crows were in the fall of 99 to where we were in the summer 2000, it was... It was light years shuttled into a, you know, Jimmy used to say, you need your seat back at the table. And what he meant by that was, look, there's only a handful of truly great rock and roll bands in the world, and you guys have lost your way. And there's this small table where I still sit and you sit and all these, you know, this handful of bands are there and you should be there. That's how he saw the Black Crows. And we agreed. And we're like, yeah, really, man, let's do this. And so, so he knew there was a lot going on and he wasn't going to let a bad back Despite how bad it was, you know, he was willing to fight through that pain and put off treatment until the tour was over because of how much it was doing for us. And so with that being the context, he had a conversation with Rich that was pretty eye opening for Jimmy. And then and then suddenly it was no longer worth putting up with the pain.
0: How could Rich do something so crazy? (laughs) I mean, you have any rock Jimmy Page is offering to co-write mm-hmm. with you on your next album. How do you turn that down? Well,
1: I mean, by that time it had been almost a, it had been a year since we had played Black Crow shows. You know, we finished our tour in July '99, and now you're looking at August of 2000, and all we've done since is play with Jimmy Page. Now I say all we've done since. Now for me that was great. For the band it was great. To Rich and Chris, you know, you could make the point they were their own writers. They were we were our own entity, and suddenly we're Jimmy Page's backup band. If your ego allows you to view it that way. I feel bad for you because that's an absurd thing on just a strictly fundamental human level. It's crazy to think that he goes and offers that, you know, Hey, I've got some riffs laying around, but I haven't finished them. Do you guys want to see if they work with something? You know, can we finish them together? That's something that if a local musician friend had said, I could see rich going like, no, we're cool. We're the black crows. But when Jimmy does it, especially in light of all that Jimmy's just done for us, it's just on a real baseline human interaction level it's just astounding and again a lot of this stuff points to their sadness there it's just like man what does that say about someone that can say those words to jimmy page when he's comes to your room to offer you know it's like hey remember that sword i pulled out of the rock and handed you here's another one whether it works or not you know and again just if you want to think through it logically we're talking about being in a studio maybe in eight months. <laughs> like there's a lot of time, if you don't want to do it, to push that off. Right. There could have been a polite way. There, there's a very polite way. But then also what that says, of, from Rich to do that, what that says about his views of not just me, but Chris and Pete, our manager, who put this whole thing together. And everybody that was on that tour and everybody that was invested heavily in this band's future, You know, he made that decision for everybody. His momentary, I don't need you to write songs for me, turned into everybody having a very, very different you know, next uh, six months.
0: Have you gotten any feedback on this book from the Brothers Robinson? No. Does that surprise you? Uh,
1: No, it doesn't surprise me since they're about to announce a tour. I'm sure they're being advised and they're thinking very carefully about what they're going to say. It doesn't help announce a tour for 2020 knowing that every article about the tour is going to mention there's a book out. I mean, it's it's a thorn in their shoe, or I mean, a stone in their shoe. A thorn and, in their side, you might it, say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, right. But they, you know, it's not something I'm sure they're pleased with. But I know that they were not happy that it was even going to happen before they knew what was in it. You know, I mean, they don't like someone else. You know, who are you to write a book about the Black Crows? Which speaks to why the Black Crows don't exist, because their opinion would be to look at me and go, who the hell do you think you are?
0: Do you think Chris is capable of being humble? I think of you know he wanted whatever it was 75% of the band right. and you guys turned him down and then right. he ends up in the Chris Robinson Brotherhood who you know I watched a couple videos of them playing and they actually were quite good and he mm-hmm. seemed very happy but they're playing you know they're playing tiny clubs yeah so is there any part of him that gets humbled by an experience like that and lets him go back to rich with a more generous spirit, or is that just not how he works?
1: I don't imagine. I mean, they've spent the last six years, as far as I've heard, just ripping the shit out of each other, you know, left and right. Chris is the kind of guy who can talk himself into believing anything. If he hears himself say it, then he thinks it's true. So the real impetus and motivations for the tour they're about to announce, if it's to prove that the Black Crows aren't dead, like Steve said, or if it's because they both need money, whatever the reasons are, you know, he can come up with a great story and and try to sell it. And I'm sure that's what they're going to do. And by the way, perfectly fine with them doing it. It just has nothing to do with me. I'm six years removed from the Black Crows and, and six years very happily removed from the Black Crows. And on every possible level personally, the best six years of my life. I don't have any beef about them going forward and doing it. It's going to be interesting to see what they say, having just spent, as I said, six years accusing each other of hypocrisy and blah, 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 blah. blah, But now they need each other again. And, of course, there is ultimately the sad postscript, which is when we had this amazing band, we could have just stayed and done things our own way. And then you wouldn't have to have a 30th year anniversary tour, which makes no sense.
0: How do you explain the animus between the brothers?
1: Uh, I don't. It was there before I got there. And so you'd have to speak to things that I'm unaware of. You know, I can describe it, but I can't explain it.
0: Did you ever try to dig into it with them and be like, you know, just like what? Because obviously the, well, there's drug stuff, but there's also it's just like, what is I, it mean, it's with just, you guys? I,
1: I don't know. I mean, every family is its own culture and it's all the family they came from, you know, both their parents, Stan and Nancy were, were wonderful to me. They loved their boys. I mean, they were incredibly supportive as far as I saw. They were as proud as any parents could be, as far as I saw. But I don't know what was going on otherwise. I heard Chris's version of what their family was like. I heard Rich's version of what their family was like. And then I saw what I saw. And so I'm not going to speak about that other than to say how I was treated, and I was always welcomed as a member of the family.
0: What advice would you have, if any, for whoever is playing drums on the upcoming <laughs> Black Crowes reunion tour?
1: I would just try to enjoy it. I mean, it's great music, and... uh you know i would wear a a swiss national soccer jersey to all rehearsals and just be neutral <laughs> and uh it's a funny question i haven't i wouldn't even know where to start actually just good luck <laughs> that's what i would say
0: excellent steve gorman thank you very much for being here
1: thank you sir so that's our
0: show for today i'm brian hyatt and this has been rolling stone music now we'll be back next week here on Sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. That is always appreciated. Thanks for listening, as always. And we'll see you next week.